Welcome to today's Plugged In Podcast. I'm Brianne Deppish, an energy reporter at the Washington Examiner, and I'm joined here today by my co-host and former FERC chairman, Neil Chatterjee. Neil, how's it going? Brianne, it's going great. Really enjoyed some of the reporting you've been doing of late. You really have your finger on the pulse of some of the key energy policy issues of the day, and I think it should make for a great Plugged In episode. I want to jump right in on something that has been front of mind for me, and that is the Biden administration's decision to order the sale of 15 million barrels of oil last week from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Look, this is a a sensitive issue for me. I think for a while, I was one of the last remaining SPRO hawks. Uh, I truly believe the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is there for our security and stability. And I, for one, was frustrated at what it appeared to be a political decision to try and maybe shave a penny off the price of gas ahead of the midterms. Compromising our security for a short-term political move like that just kind of stuck in my craw, but was curious as to what your reporting found in looking into this important issue. Yeah, so you are not the only one, obviously, objecting to that. The drawdowns of the SPR have been really framed by critics as something that has depleted the reserves to their lowest point in 40 years, and also one that's really basically a short-term energy designed to drive down costs, right? And it's all coming to bear at a particularly rough time for oil markets. Obviously, the decision to release 15 million barrels was part of the 180 million barrel release that Biden ordered in March. It's not any new oil that wasn't previously going to be on the market coming out. But they also suggested, the White House did, in kind of tandem with that announcement, that Biden is looking closely at the markets and that he might uh, order even more oil to be released. How much of this is a reaction to the OPEC plus countries announcing that they plan to slash production by 2 million barrels a day. I mean, the president went over to Saudi Arabia in particular, drew considerable blowback from a lot of folks in the foreign policy establishment who thought he was rewarding Saudi Arabia by sort of essentially begging them for more supplies and that he was burned when the OPEC plus countries made this announcement. In your reporting, you know, what is the nexus between that decision and this road drawdown? I think it's really going to depend on factors that have yet to really come to bear, right? The first one is going to be the change in demand from China, right? Obviously, the OPEC decision by itself is big. As the top energy official Amos Hotchstein pointed out on CBS, the actual number that the OPEC plus production cuts are will really end up being is somewhere around like 500,000 barrels a day. Um, it's not going to actually be 2 million barrels per day, like the number that they announced. So I think more important factors remain to be seen. The first is whether China's economy begins to reopen. We've seen reports the last couple of weeks suggesting that they're moving towards easing certain restrictions for visitors, certain quarantine restrictions, and much remains to be seen there. But there are concerns that if China's economy is beginning to reopen, its demand, you know, as the number one crude importer in the world, will significantly tighten global markets. And then the second thing, the second biggie, 
is the news of, I guess, the Russian oil price cap and the coming EU sanctions on Russian seaborne crude imports. Those will take effect on December 5th, both of those things. And if they together force Russia to significantly scale back its production, that could prompt a huge, huge reduction in markets, a huge supply to disruption that could actually meet the threshold for a supply emergency. This is a little bit outside of my wheelhouse. Can you just for our listeners, you know, spell out a little bit, what, what does this mean? What is this strategy, this action, this this price cap idea? And does it work? Is it effective? What does it do to sanctions and, and other strategies? Just kind of flesh out what this all means. It's interesting. The Russian oil price cap was kind of the brainchild of Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. She and top Treasury officials kind of really traversed the globe in recent months to lobby countries to join this global coalition. And it seems the sources I've talked to in recent days said it seems that the framework for the oil price cap has actually kind of changed in recent months. Originally, they were trying to build out massive global coalition buy-in from other countries and basically trying to secure this agreement that they would cap Russian oil output at a certain level and that Russia would be unable to export any of its crude above that capped price. But it's unclear, really. I think in recent days, we've gotten a little bit more clarity as to Russia's response to that. And it seems like it's going to adopt sort of the Iranian-Venezuelan playbook, which is to say it's not going to abide by the price cap at all. Recent reports show up to 80 or 90 percent of Russian crude exports could continue to kind of skirt this price cap after it takes effect. That's due to a huge, massive fleet of kind of shadow ships that they've been amassing from China and India and other Middle Eastern and Asian areas of the world. And then there's also a lack of teeth, I guess, in the price cap plan. G7 nations endorsed it earlier this year, but for lack of buy-in from other countries, the U.S. has also signaled it doesn't plan on imposing any additional enforcement mechanisms such as secondary sanctions. And analysts say that given the current squeeze on global markets, it's even more unlikely that they would take any sort of steps that would give this plan additional teeth. Could this cause a shock to global markets? And like, what if Russia were to curtail its production as a result of this move? What would that mean for Americans? Absolutely. That's one of the biggest risks, right? That Russia could, in response to the to the price cap, and if it's not able to continue exporting crude, you know, it doesn't have the storage ability necessary to, to store its oil. So it just would really have to halt production. It doesn't have any other really abilities there. So yeah, unless, unless they're able to skirt it through the shadow ships, through mid-sea transfers, basically, which would involve giving it to other suppliers that would then carry it into ports. Basically, this would throw a huge disruption. And I think that's why we've seen Treasury officials in recent weeks say that they're considering a capped price of about $60 a barrel. That is far, far higher than previous estimates had suggested. And the degree to which they've really seemed to approach secondary sanctions and enforcement measures kind of leaves me and those that I've spoken to with the impression that it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if the price cap didn't change much, right? They're saying that might be a better case scenario than the opposite outcome, which would be that Russia drastically scales back production, that we have this global energy crisis, essentially. Because right now, basically, an argument that could be made is that Russia's revenue has already decreased in the last couple of months because 
companies are really self-sanctioning or passing real sanctions. <laughs> so Russia's revenue has already been limited. And so the price cap in some ways would almost be a redundant measure at this point. What role does China reopening play into all this? And I can't help but wonder if you combine potentially lower Russian output, couple that with the OPEC plus production cuts, and then you add in, layer in a rise in demand from Beijing. I mean, I got to imagine that's a recipe for disaster. It is a recipe for disaster. And it's one that an analyst I spoke to predicted this exact, you know, he said this exact situation would be incredibly bad. It would be a real crisis and one that US SPR reserves would be ultimately a drop in the bucket. Right now we are down, the reserves are down to about 400 million barrels. That is not even enough to really supply global markets for a week, just to illustrate that. And legally, Biden can't actually draw down the reserves below 250 million barrels. So he's pretty limited in his response capabilities here. But that is the worst case scenario. And it would actually really put a lot of pressure on OPEC again. They would really be the only solution and the only person we would basically have to beg them to up their output from December onward. We really don't want that situation in which they have all of the leverage and we're we're just hugely dependent on them. I got to tell you, as somebody who's been in Washington for a couple of decades now and has watched this play out, I have to tell you, it, it is enraging to me when presidents of either party try and tie themselves to gas prices. Like to me, it's political malpractice because presidents really do have very little ability to have any kind of impact on the price of the pump. This is a global market. There are so many variables that come into this. So the Biden administration clearly staring down a difficult midterm environment with high gas prices, high natural gas prices, inflationary pressure hitting Americans, particularly when it comes to energy. They're trying to blame everyone possible. They're calling it, you know, Putin's price increase. They're blaming OPEC plus, potentially blaming China. And they've started to blame domestic producers, making accusations about market manipulation or producers not really utilizing their full capabilities. At the end of the day, you've done a lot of reporting in this area. I mean, whose fault is it? Is the Biden administration right to be pointing the fingers at some of these places? Or are they simply in a place where they're powerless to really do anything about the price of the pump with all these myriad factors? That's a really good question. I can attempt to respond to parts of us. This is actually something you might be better poised to speak to than me, Neil. Just how Biden's actions really compare to previous drawdowns from administrations. I know Biden is certainly not the first president to sell off SPR oil, right? under the laws that regulate it, the president is granted really broad discretion to make these sales as needed. Importantly, I think it's kind of interesting to consider that there have really only been three in the whole history of the SPR, which was stood up in the late 1970s. There have only been three instances when the president has actually declared a supply emergency. The first was in 1991. At the beginning of Operation Desert Storm, that was in coordination with other allies. It was a big joint release of oil. The second was in September 2005 after Hurricane Katrina. That was a real supply emergency because it affected 25% of U.S. production, which was temporarily shut down completely in the Gulf Coast and in Louisiana, Mississippi. And the third was in June 2011. That was the most recent one in response to crude oil supply disruptions in Libya. So that's a lot. Those situations are all much, much different than the current situation, right? There's a myriad of factors affecting prices right now. Production remains 
a little bit under pre-pandemic levels. And it's really unclear. I think a lot of investors, at least the people that I've spoken to, have signaled some reluctance to invest in new projects. And they're hesitant to really lean too far in or invest too much capital behind these projects. President Biden campaigned on stopping new drilling and transitioning to clean energy. Brian, this is all great stuff. Been really doing a lot of incredible reporting lately. And these issues are all so critically important to us here at home in the United States of America, but around the world as well. Energy news never stops. What's on tap for uh, for the future? What are some other stories that you're working on? So with just a couple weeks until the midterm elections, oil and gas prices, there's going to be very, very close eyes on both of those things, you know, in the U.S. from voters before they head to the ballot boxes. I think we'll likely hear more from Biden if prices continue to climb. I don't want to rule out the possibility that they could order more really from SPR within the next month. What would they do? Scrape the sides of the barrels? Is there anything, yeah. anything left? Honestly, it's it's reaching that point. It really threatens to reach that point. I also think we should be watching, this would be after the midterms, but when Congress is back in session, will they move on NOPEC legislation? That act is the No Oil Producing and Exporting Cartels Act, and both the House and the Senate would need to ratify that, send it to Biden's desk for signature. But Biden has indicated, the White House has indicated that it would likely sign the bill, and Biden, the senator, has actually voted to approve it as well. We would likely see support from that, although it remains to be seen if we will have to then turn back back to Saudi and request more oil production. I would say the biggest thing is to look for what other countries that have been ramping up their Russian oil imports, such as China and India, what are they doing? Are they moving to continue to sign these new contracts for Russian oil imports? You know, because these often need to be secured a month, two months, months ahead of time. So are they appearing to be sort of capitulating to these demands at all to this price cap? Or do they appear to just be continuing sort of undeterred with their purchases of Russian oil? And then, of course, how Russia responds. And I think China China's economy. Those are the big things to watch for. It is certainly a long list of things to watch for, and it will keep me really busy in the next couple of weeks and months. I love it. Well, I look forward to uh, to reading it. I look forward to discussing it with you and with future guests on the Plugged In podcast. I really always enjoy doing these powwows with you. We're going to go back to uh, interviewing a guest next week. But I think this was a great episode to really recap some of the most significant energy issues of the day. So thank you for for all your quality reporting. And thank everyone for tuning in to another episode of the Plugged In Podcast. Thanks so much again for listening to Season 3 of the Plugged In Podcast. New episodes will be available on Tuesdays at noon Eastern Time. You can keep up with all things energy by following the Washington Examiner on all of our social media channels and by subscribing to the Daily on Energy newsletter, written by me, Brianne Depish, and my co-author, Jeremy Beeman. 